Everyone. Welcome back to Making the Scene. I'm your host, Eric Sipple. Each week I bring on a guest, and that guest brings on a scene. And we discuss that scene, that scene from a movie that they love and a specific scene that they love. And we talk about how it works, how and why that scene is important to them. And today I am joined by my good friend and um, sometimes creative partner and sometimes host of me as his guest, Paul Smith. How are you doing, Paul? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to have you here. Um, and why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? What does Paul Smith do in the wider world of the internet? <laughs> in the, oh, in the internet, you had to be specific. I, um, I mean, I, I think we can talk about the real world too, but most people are bored by the real world. But we can talk about the real world too. <laughs> um, well, in the real world, uh, I, I'm a zookeeper, so um, I, I dig lots of holes and clean up lots of poop. That's what I do in the real world. Um, I guess that's kind of what I do on the internet, too. <laughs> you, I, you are not just a, a zookeeper. You are a kilted zookeeper, and you true. specifically train murderous birds sometimes, <laughs> which I think is pretty excellent. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's, that is accurate. Um, I, I have trained the occasional murderous bird, the animal that has wanted to kill me, so... It's happened. But yeah, on the internet, uh, I also dig holes and move around a lot of poop. But um, you mentioned that uh, I host you on a show. Yeah, I, I'm a co-host of the Gobbledygeek podcast. And um, I, I get myself in trouble on Twitter a lot. That's about it. That's what I do. Well, uh, the, the, let's not uh, skip entirely over the Gobbledygeek podcast, which is a fantastic podcast. And you should go to see it at gobbledygeekpodcast.com. Um, they talk about movies and comic books and other nerdy things, and um, you can always tell when they're getting desperate because they invite me back on. <laughs> we invite you on all the time. So you are always desperate. We are exactly. always desperate. We are always <laughs> desperate. <laughs> it's a great podcast, and um, it, it's uh, it's been a real pleasure being on, and, and um, you should check it out. Uh, and other than that, um, we should mention that while you're listening to this, it, it probably isn't out just yet, but it should be very soon. Um, Paul... Uh, Talk for a second about the uh, the deli. The deli. Uh, which deli are you referring to? Would that be the uh, Justice Deli? That would be the Justice Deli, yes. The, the deli counter of justice. Uh, yeah, so there's this um, crazy idea that um, Eric and uh, our mutual friend AJ came up with as a joke one day, the deli counter of justice. And uh, one of them, I don't remember which one of was it AJ that said that sounds like a yeah, he said that, that, sound like that a sounds like a book title, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. So it went from a silly little Twitter joke to now it's a superhero anthology series, um, short stories set in a fictional world that uh, the three of us, Eric, AJ, and myself, are now uh, co-editing and creating, and we've got a bunch of uh, outside authors that have joined us to to play in our our. Dirty little backyard. That sounded bad. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the the first the first volume, the first collection of short stories is uh, it's it's basically done. We're just in the the post production phase. We're actually trying to put some polish on it and make it presentable. But uh, ideally, there will be future volumes because um, 
I, I think the three of us have have created a pretty fascinating world, and we want to start filling in all the little corners. It, it, I, I agree. It's been a it's been an awesome experience, and hopefully, um, fall of 2014, it will be available to you. So keep an eye out for that. Um, so today we're going to be discussing, um, Paul chose, uh, one of my favorite movies. So I'm, I'm excited to get to talk about it. It's Blade Runner by director Ridley Scott. Um, the cinematographer was Jordan Cronenweth and it's edited by Mark, Martha Nakashima and Terry Rawlings. Um, fantastic movie, maybe the only, um, it's not even really a true cyberpunk movie, but it's about as close as we've ever gotten to cyberpunk (laughs) in the cinema. Um, and it's just a just a really phenomenal movie of which there are more cuts than you can shake a stick at. But um, for real, it's crazy. We are discussing the final cut on this, correct? We both watched the final yeah. cut. Yes, that is correct. Okay, so we are on the the final cut, which is not that different from the director's cut, I believe. But um, for viewers out there, if you want to make sure you're seeing exactly the same version, it's the final cut. Um, Paul, uh, tell us what scene we have um, put on deck for us today. Uh, well, the scene, there's so many individual scenes in this that stand out uh, in my mind, but uh, I think when I was trying to nail down one in particular to watch, the the one that I kept coming back to was the uh, the uh, to live in fear or like tears and rain. I'm not sure what you want to call it, but uh, the, the tears and rain scene. So Roy Batty's sort of final soliloquy at the end. Which is uh, absolutely classic scene. If you, yeah. it's maybe the one of the easiest things to find on the internet. If you type in, <laughs> this is true. Uh, we had we had waves of this scene, um, this monologue in my IRC channel that we would play <laughs> to each other, um, and That's so great. it's been around. Yeah, it's it's this is um, definitely one of the most classic scenes in yeah. cinema, um, and one of my absolute favorites. So um, yeah, I'm really excited. So um, so I guess. I want to talk a little bit um, with you, Paul, about, you know, the thing, it's hard to not to talk about Blade Runner without talking briefly, at least about the, the look of the film, which yeah. there was nothing before it that looked like it. And quite frankly, I'm not sure anything has come close after. So many things have tried. Lots of things have tried. Lots yeah. of things have tried. And what's cool about the scene is, while it has nothing to do with, like, you know, there's a lot of... When when you when you see when you search for Blade Runner on the internet, you see a lot of shots of like the spinners, the the cars flying by giant signs, and the yeah. factories spewing spewing fire into the night sky, and yeah, and and it's it's glorious. What, what I like about this is that we've kind of left that behind at this point in the movie because we're at the end and we know what the film looks like. But they're on rooftops, and a lot of those elements, those elements that they set up, are there. And and one of the things that's always struck me off this movie, and you get it in this scene. You are never free of advertisements in the world. No, Runner. no. Uh, yeah, there's a gigantic um, two, I think, actually gigantic uh, ads for the Dark Knight yes. in the background. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the big neon TDK, which uh, I, as I was watching the film uh, for this podcast, I, I caught myself wondering for the first time, what do people? I'll just say it like AJ <laughs> when they watch the scene, what do they think TDK means? I'm just, I'm curious. TDK was a, were they, were they a electronics manufacturer? They, they were. Yeah, they did. Uh, uh, televisions. I'm trying to think. I, I know there was some TDK. I, stuff. I, I knew them from like, um, like audio record, like tape players and yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I forgot that was a real company. Actually. I, it was, it was ringing a bell in my head when I was watching this, but I, I kind of forgotten that there were real companies being advertised. Yeah. Yeah. There's advertising all over this film, but that in, in this scene, that's the big one. And 
it, it, I'm, I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure it's two different neon signs for TDK that are in the various backgrounds. It, and, they're, and they're huge. And in fact, the, there's a TDK sign behind Batty's face for the entire monologue. The entire right. end monologue, there is this bright neon TDK sign behind That's it. That's right. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing to me that, you know, it, it's always interesting to me what science fiction predicts, you know, what it gets right. And things that you don't expect that seem almost absurd. And Blade Runner's oppressive advertisements feel like an like an overstatement like almost like satire but yeah it's, but it's totally it's totally true it's yeah that's where we are now you go down the you go down the roads and there are i mean not just Times square now you go down you drive down any road and there's electronic billboards and yeah that, yeah it, that just dawned on me like there it used to be there are billboards everywhere but now you actually have the gigantic movie screen billboards just <laughs> like in this film they're they're everywhere and and you know that's one element of the mood is that is that the, the advertisements but the other thing I've, i noticed that i you know there's always rain it's is it, is it ever not raining in this movie by the way i don't i don't think so it, it, it seems to be raining especially hard in this scene but other than that it's it's raining absolutely constantly and there's a lot of steam in the yes. world of blade runner um the thing i didn't notice this time in the in like the overall texture of the scene is there are a hell of a lot of fans on those rooftops <laughs> yeah there, there's something about the roof of the building that they're on that uh a lot of just standing fans that don't appear to be doing anything. I suppose, I suppose it could be an early version of like a wind farm. I don't know, but I was wondering that too. Like maybe it's some kind of some kind of wind power because they're huge. They're these giant fans, yeah, and they're spinning the entire time. And I don't know what they're supposed to be for, but they they're the, everywhere. The two uh, visuals that stand out about those fans: the first time that you you really see them is uh, when uh, after Deckard, after Harrison Ford has gotten himself all the way up onto the roof and he's standing and he's looking for where to go and he's kind of walking across the roof and you just see he's walking between these rows of these fans. I don't know. There's a dozen of them or something. There's a ton of them and they're just slowly spinning. And on the right side of the screen, the ones that are, uh, are spinning are kind of making a strobe effect with this very bright light that's behind him and, uh, creating these, (laughs) these, um, uh, lens flares, these J.J. Abrams-esque <laughs> lens flares. Um, so, so there's that. Uh, I mean, that had to have been deliberate the way that that was framed. There's lens, lens flares in this movie all over the place. But, I mean, that was very deliberate. You know what I noticed with the with – the, so I'm, I'm paying attention to the lighting in the scene. And I'm trying to figure out where some of it's coming from. And the first time I'm watching it, there's a lot of times where, where Harrison Ford is, is on the roof. And there's like these brief flashes of lights on his face. And for a second, I was wondering if it was storming. But there uh-huh. isn't. There, there's some kind of like spotlight thing moving around, and I, and I don't know what it's motivated by, but it's interesting because just there's all these like ambient lights, like the signs and the and the fans and the city lights and all that stuff. But then there's like this chaotic like stro- like spotlight thing, which I think is what's creating a lot of those stroboscopic effects with the fans. Yeah, it'll just sort of like spin and sort of shine on his face for a second and then go away, which is which makes the lighting because it's really dark. The scene is really dark. The whole movie is, but yeah, <laughs> it, there, there's never any sunlight. No. And, and it's so dark that there's times where you can barely see what's going on until the big monologue. There's a lot of light in that scene, but with the, the scene at the beginning when he's on the roof and he's running across, mm. it's super dark. Yeah. It's very, um, am I going to get this word right? Chiroscuro? Is that yeah. I think, I think yeah. that's right. I think yeah, that's right. It's, it's very, 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 very stark, almost black and white at times, but, uh, yeah. 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 It's interesting that you mentioned the, the sort of vaguely sourced light every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like 
just just right prior to this scene, like the scene leading up to this scene, there was a perfect example of uh, like there was the chain link fence with just the spinning lights behind it that yeah. served that served absolutely no purpose. There was no <laughs> reason in the in the world of the film for that light device to be there. It was only to cause that sort of chaotic spinning light effect, and it just so happened that the the actors like ran right up to it so you could see the light display. But you know, what, um, you know what's funny about the the lighting in this movie and some of it not being like the overall look too is that we've seen a, like dozens of movies try to emulate the sort of Blade Runner yeah. idea and or go in other directions and and they've always failed and in fact those kinds of choices in other movies tend to feel really obvious and 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 almost desperate, but I don't know what it is about the overall look of Blade Runner that it feels like a real world. I mean, as ridiculous as some of those things are, like these giant fans, somehow it actually comes together into feeling like a real place. The, the, and I don't even remember what the hell city it's supposed to be in Blade Runner. What, what city are we in? Is it Los Angeles? It's Los Angeles, yeah. Okay, sorry. I, I, it's been a while since I've I've watched the whole thing through. I only watched the scene, but Blade Runner's Los Angeles feels... I can't think of, a, of many other sci-fi places that feel as real as Blade Runner's Los Angeles. It feels plausible. Yeah. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, maybe it's it, within the context of this film, it feels like the desperation of the people in the film. Whereas all the, all the movies that come after it, it feels like the desperation of the filmmakers. <laughs> it's like, look, we have signs, we've got lights, there's some steam, we have a steam pipe yeah. back there, can you see it? Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a glorious, glorious looking scene. Um, I was saying that there were two things I remember about those spinning fans. Uh, one was the way that it sort of did the strobe effect with, and the, the lens flares as he's walking across the, the rooftop. The other is after he is, after Roy has gotten up onto the roof and, uh, and, uh, Deckard has, has jumped to the other side and, uh, the camera's looking up at Roy, like he comes up over the rise of the edge of the roof, yeah. comes into frame and it's almost slow motion. There's one of those, those fans almost directly behind him as he comes up into frame and it's just spinning slow motion. And, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure what it's trying to say there, but, uh, it, it, added more visual interest to that particular scene and menace of some kind. I don't know how, I don't know why, but uh, then it would have, if it, if it had just been uh, Rucker Hauer sticking his head over the <laughs> side. Well, you know, I noticed that there's a lot of shots of, of Batty like entering the scene in this scene, you know, like, <laughs> yes. like he walks over the rise of the ledge. He, he comes and when I think the, I think the first shot after um, when he jumps across the roofs and he reaches his hand down to Harrison Ford again, he kind of comes he appears over the ledge of the building again. Yeah. And he's sort of like, and, and that, I think that like the, the whole scene before that too, a lot of the chase sequence, Batty is kind of like appearing at will throughout yes. the entire movie, yeah. I mean, the entire scene. It, it's, it, it you, I mean, by this point you've realized you can't escape Roy Batty. Like Deckard is, is completely at Batty's mercy, this entire yeah. scene. And by this point, even Deckard is not under any illusions that he's getting away. From <laughs> yes. Roy Batty. Very true. Um, so hanging you know, from a rooftop with two broken fingers. Uh, it, so you know, before we go any further, one thing I think we should probably do for the audience is, um, you know, it's not easy to say where the scene ends and begins. So I think it might be worth noting that we pick this scene up um, from the point at which um, Deckard climbs up onto the roof. Um, yeah, he's he kind of goes out the window, I think, of of a of a room and then climbs up to the top of the yeah, building. The, um, I, I've got timestamps if you want that. It's, I think you do, yeah. Is it one forty, an hour 42? Is that where we picked it up? Yeah. on the. So this is the final cut 
uh, version, like you said, and it's Blu-ray. That's what I watched. And so on mine, it, it's actually Scene 32, The Roof is what it's titled. And uh, it starts at an hour 42.30. And and we go up until the point, really up until we cut out of the scene after Gaff, who's um, Edward James Almost's character, um, appears in a spinner and, um, and, and cuts away. And that's at 148. 14856. Cool. Yeah. Um so we're basically taking it the entire rooftop scene is is basically what we're discussing here. Yeah. Um it's hard to So, it's so hard it, to start, it starts off. with Harrison Ford reaching his shaking broken hand up over the edge of the roof, yeah. And and, and it's it's this is one thing I just want to want to take a quick second to talk about is this is the Bradbury building, which is just an awesome, yes. which is lo- I love that this is called the Bradbury building. That's so beautiful. Do they mention it at, by name in the movie or is that I, just the... I don't think they do. I okay. don't think they do. Because I read that when I was reading about the scene, I kept seeing people talk about the Brad, the Bradbury building and I was like, I didn't realize yeah. that it was a Ray Bradbury reference. It's a dilapidated like hotel or apartment building or something. Mm-hmm. With, with like the, the really cool cage elevators or whatever that yeah that rattle up yeah and and uh, the you know getting into this scene is is kind of tough to to go out without discussing the you know this this is the decaying building and batty has played cat and mouse with deckard through the entire building up into including shoving his head through a wall which is one of the weirdest scenes (laughs) oh when batty sticks his head through a wall yeah when batty like just jams his own head through a wall (laughs) and is like hey what's up deckard um, it's so we've been we've gotten into this scene via Batty's bizarre antics as he yeah. chases Deckard around, and it's worth bringing up because when we get to the scene, it's not really clear what Batty wants from Deckard through most right. of the scene. Right. Um. So so yeah so okay so let's let's talk about the roof side before we get into the tears in the rain side. Let's talk about the roof jumping bits first because once we get into tears in the rain, we're done. We're gonna. We're going to sink into the tears in the rain sequence immediately. <laughs> that, was, that was very poetic. Thank you. Um, so, I, you know, I, I the one thing I really love about that rooftop scene, and we kind of lose it when we get to the conversation in Tears in the Rain. It's the other aspect of the the um, the look of the scene. Have you noticed how how deep the photography is in this? Like, it, you don't just get one layer. There's like them in the foreground, and then there's the fans, and then there's steam, and then there's a building in the background, and the whole movie looks like that. There is so much depth to the visuals. Mm-hmm. of this movie i i can't think of a science fiction movie that like that where there's that much depth to the world it goes all the way back yeah i you're right but the the image that's standing out in my mind actually comes like <clears throat> excuse me at the very end of all this there's a a scene where i particularly noticed that you had like almost three planes of uh a visual the foreground, the midground, and the background. Obviously, you always have that, but there's a, a scene or a moment at the end of the scene where that stood out particularly sharply. Is to me. the shot of Gaff near the end? It's the shot of this of uh, like Deckard looking at the the just dying baddie, and then the spinner is rising up in the background. Yeah, and the spinner is so subtle in the background that you know you almost don't even notice that it's happening. And I wonder if that depth is a good a good reason of why this world feels so real and other science fiction worlds tend to feel like they're an artifice because it's not just the foreground that's there. Someone took time to, and I'm not sure, was this map paintings on some of this? Like how did they, do you you know anything about how they It had to be. I I, I don't know. I don't know for sure, but like certainly the early stuff, like flying over the city and setting the, the cityscape up. I feel like that almost had to be map painting stuff. This was, this was 1982. So, 
not a lot of visual, uh, you know, CG effects or anything. And and it's ridiculous that this world looks better than almost anything. You know, I, I, I it's funny. I didn't take any notes on on. And then this says this is what it says about the effects in this movie. I watched this scene maybe eight times. I didn't take one note about the effects, and I'm a moron because the effects are a huge part of what makes this work. <laughs> but the effects are so seamless. It looks, yeah. it still looks fantastic. 1982, and you cannot see. This doesn't look like a movie with special effects. Yeah, I, I have to add in here that um, I before I watched just the scene, I rewatched the film in its entirety, and my wife Pam had never seen it. She's not a Harrison Ford fan, but we'll let that go for now. <laughs> But she'd never seen it, so she watched it with me. And uh, her comment basically was uh, – she she enjoyed it. She didn't love it, but she enjoyed it. But her comment was that uh, it's amazing to her how well this movie holds up. Like she she expected it to be one of those – well, that was a 1980s sci-fi movie, wasn't it? And she was like, it, it's, it's really amazing that um, for a movie that's, you know, 25 – how old? Thirty years old. It's it's thirty. Yeah, it's got to be what thirty-two. Thirty-two. Yeah, thirty-two years old. That uh, it really it still looks, you know, timely. It it really does. I mean, and I can't. You know, I, I wish we had an old version of Star Wars to go back to to compare to because Star Wars is the only other genre film of that era that maybe holds up as well. But it's kind of hard to tell now because we don't have original versions of it exactly to look at. But. Blade Runner looks better, and I'm not saying this as some kind of like hipster nerd. Blade Runner looks better than than al- almost any science fiction movie world that I can think of. Yeah, and and I and I really like. I wonder now if the way they achieve that is because the world goes back so far. Because really, when we when we're in a city, when you know when you're when you're in a city, there's layers to that city. You know, you're on the street, and behind you there's a building, and then the street goes back further, and you forget that when you're world building in a movie. That you yeah. just kind of you kind of you put the the pooping dinosaurs in the front, and, <laughs> and that's all you worry about. That's what this movie was missing. Pooping <laughs> dinosaurs. Um, but it just it's 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 amazing how much how much is going on in almost every shot of these, and it's not distracting. It's perfect. It's Ridley Scott. It must be said for all of his failings in in recent years narratively, that man knows how to make a movie look fantastic. <laughs> He has his issues, but yes, he he can make a movie. He he knows what it what a world should look like. His world building is almost always fantastic. Yeah. Uh, um. So 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 we're on the roof, and uh, Deckard and and Roy are are Deckard kind of climbs up to the roof, and he and he sees Batty as he tries to escape, and he does this ludicrous idea to jump across from the Bradbury yeah. building to whatever other buildings across from him. So terrible. Yeah, and. And you know, and what I like about that 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 scene is is the way that you know we we get that trapped feeling, and then he jumps, and he and we end up on a from one unfinished building to another unfinished building. We end up like on this building that looked like it was finished at one time, and now is falling apart. And then he jumps across to this like iron girder. Yes, and it feels like a building under construction. I'm not really sure what he's jumped onto at that point, but I, it has that feel of like a building under construction. I think it's just the crazy architecture. I'm not sure, but because there's more. I mean, you see them running down the the entire ledge of the building. Like they, there's more of those. But I've watched this film. I don't even know how many dozens of times over the years. And every time he makes that jump, and the the stunt actor or whoever it is lands and like catches themselves on that, they like they land just to the side of it and catch it under their arm and their rib cage. And I'm always like that. Ooh. I mean, it's just a steel girder with all these rivets and bolts and sharp edges sticking out. I mean, that had to have just crippled that guy. 
it's brutal. It, oh yeah, and 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 what I like is you know, so we get onto that girder and he's and he's falling off, and we get sort of an inversion of what we normally get in these scenes. So usually, cause let's face it, this is a pretty common thing: heroes hanging off of a ledge while the villain hovers over him. Yeah, yeah. And in every other time, the villains what stomping on their feet or their <laughs> hands or or you know like trying to knock him off. And yeah. in this, Batty jumps across and then he just stares at him. Yeah, and there's a. There's specifically a frame uh, looking up at Batty, so the rain's falling down in his face, and and the blood from like his head injury is dripping down into his eyes and actually dripping off his nose almost onto the camera lens. <laughs> and it, he looks at him, and he's got at first he's got just sort of a leering kind of evil little smile as he's watching his his enemy dangle, and then he kind of cocks his head a little bit, and and uh, there's just a there's just a moment in that actor's face where you see him. Uh, puzzle or whatever like he, he's he has sort of a change of thought about the scene in front of him and and so okay i want to get into the the meat of what's going on in that moment in just a second i, I just want to talk about a couple of little other camera shot things and then we'll we're gonna and then we're gonna dig into the tears in the rain because that there's just okay. a an endless ocean of things to discuss there but um what i what i love is that you know we get to that sequence with him on him looking over deckard and we have basically what like two shots almost there of like you know, we have Deckard hanging off the ledge and baddies that that you're right that beautiful under the like from above from underneath shot of Roy Batty's face and then he pulls him up and there's a couple of like establishing shots or whatever and then we're back to two shots again when he gives his tears in the rain speech and it is an incredibly simply shot sequence in those two moments like the two big emotional moments all of the visual artifice kind of goes away it's yeah. two easy, two very simple shots giving those two actors time to do stuff. And I kind of love that for a movie that has had a chase sequence up to this point, that it immediately calms down into these really simple shots for the two big confrontations, them staring at each other and then Roy Batty's dying monologue. Yeah, it's um, – it is interesting that for a film – I don't remember what the runtime on this movie is. It's uh... – it's just under two hours, I think. Uh, okay, so an almost two-hour-long film, and uh, like the scene that uh, it's safe to say most people remember uh, from the film, the, the the climactic moment is really, really short and incredibly simple. Like all this stuff happens in the movie, and and you know our characters are are developed over x number of minutes, and Roy Batty is this horrible villain and this plotting jason of the future or whatever but uh when it comes right down to it i mean it's less than i mean the actual tears and rain scene is less than two minutes long probably yeah and and there's really not an not a lot of artifice Mm -hmm. to it no there there isn't it's it's you know and it rides off of the visual language the film has developed up to that point which is one thing that's interesting talking about the technique of this scene is that Nothing is going on in the scene that hasn't already been established. The look of the movie has been well established. We're not – a lot of movies set their climaxes in very unique, like, new locations. Mm-hmm. You know, we get to some – Highlander has its factory. Right. Um, yeah. You know, Star all the various Star Wars ones, we get to the Emperor's throne room or or the, the Carbonite chamber. You know, it's very common for action movies to set their climaxes – or genre movies, at least – to set their climaxes in relatively new locales. Oh, and and thus they have to like establish all this area. Whereas this, it's sort of like this tiny little corner of this world we've been seeing up till now. So it can it can calm down and focus on the emotions of the scene 
because it doesn't need to establish anything new. Yeah. I had never thought of that before. In fact, the scenes leading up to this were in the, were in the Bradbury building, which was a very – in the world of this film is a very uh, – is a character in and of itself. J.F. Sebastian's crazy you know, doll-making <laughs> factory or whatever he had going on there. It was all very wacky and distinct. But yeah, you're right. The, the final scene is not a particularly um, – I mean it's not a memorable setting. No, it's it's just it's sort of just outside, just a rooftop, just a rooftop with with more neon advertisements and a hell ton of rain. From yeah. Roy Batty, how miserable was Rucker Hauer? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so okay, so there's there's two big kind of speeches in this that Roy Batty gets, and I always remember the tears in the rain thing. But there's actually this great little moment he has when Deckard's still hanging off his to live in fear. Mm-hmm. speech and it is i can't believe i forgot about this because it's a fascinating moment as as he's as decker's hanging off roy batty looking mockingly down at him gives this kind of mean and 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 painful speech about living quite, in fear is living quite as a slave. an experience to live in fear isn't it yeah yeah that's what it is to live in as a slave yep and and at that moment okay this is what i love about the scene so at that moment it feels like Roy Batty is here to watch Deckard die, right? Yes. And so he gives a speech, and and Deckard falls off, and he grabs him. So I want you to, I want your opinion on this, Paul. Is Roy Batty changing his mind at that moment before he falls, or has Roy Batty? Does he suddenly have a moment of mercy and pick him up, or was he? What do you think? I'm, I, what's going through Roy Batty's head at that point? Um. I think I think most of my experience with this film, I I probably read that as he just saved him so he could continue to, to taunt him. Like he wasn't ready, he wasn't done playing with him. Yeah. Uh, so you know he just he lets him dangle literally, uh, and lose his grip and know that he's going to die, and then he saves him so that he can prolong the torture or whatever. That's probably how I usually felt about that but um i'm not so sure anymore i think with that with that odd little turn of the he- odd little cock of the head that he gives as he's looking down at him and then uh I, I i don't know i think at that point uh it's it's let's mention the fact that so he reaches out and he catches deckard as he falls and he lifts him up one-handed over the edge of the roof because he's a replicant and he's super strong but uh i don't know if you noticed that they show his hand as he's gripping Deckard's wrist as he's lifting him up and he's got the nail sticking out through it. Yeah. The nail that he had actually driven through his own hand. Yes. Because yes, because he is, he's dying at this moment. Like his, his incept date, his uh, warranty is expiring. And so he was actually starting to die and his hands were starting to cramp and he shoves a nail through his hand to, to, you know, jolt himself to unlock his hand or whatever. Right. Yeah. So, um, at this point, he knows he's dead, and th- this is uh well, I mean, I-, I don't know if you want me to get into all the 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 deep emotional and philosophical stuff here, but basically, my take now watching the film now, my take is that uh, he's made a decision. He's not going to kill Deckard. He he has something he wants to say, and he wants Deckard to hear it. I I'm, I agree. I think that up to that point, you know, because Deckard has killed Pris at this point who's mm-hmm. who's the probably the most important thing to, to um 
body. Yeah, which which can we mention that has given for this final scene that has given Roy Batty some crazy uh, Joker makeup. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> because he after Pris is dead, he kissed her, and so he got her white cake makeup on his face, and then he dips his fingers in his bl- in her blood and like wipes it down his lips. So <laughs> for much of this final scene, he's got this really creepy sort of white makeup with blood streaks on his face. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so he's not in a good place, and I do agree. I think his intention is to let Deckard know what it feels like to be him, to know that you're about to die and not to be able to stop it, and then to die. Right. And I think that's what he's expecting. And then in that last moment, as Deckard's about to fall, I agree, there is a change. And and I, I, his Rucker Hauer's face in this scene, Paul makes me angry that Rucker Howard did not have a better film career. I absolutely agree. He is doing some amazingly subtle stuff with his acting in this scene. I absolutely agree. And, and, and you can just see that change, and then he grabs him. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is something you want to discuss on this podcast, but uh, that the final soliloquy, the Tears and Rain speech that we get, that was Rucker Howard's, uh, without discussing it with um, with ridley scott that was his editorial on the lines that he was given like he there was a much longer scripted bit of dialogue there and the night before filming he sort of rewrote it and edited it down to that really yeah that's fascinating i didn't know that and it it, which which good for him because that is like the you know it's one of the seminal moments of film and, and it's his and it's unfortunate because you know not to say he hasn't been any other good movies but this is really his only high profile yeah, movie. I mean, I I love. Well, him. he was in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. Come on. Well, that's right. And he, but <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, like, I love. Don't get me wrong. I love. Um, oh my god, I'm blank. Lady Hawk. Lady Hawk. Yes. I love Lady Hawk, but you know that movie is not. It does not. <laughs> it's have not esteem. good. Yeah. It's not. It's not good. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, his. So I love that you can see it in his face there, and then he lifts Deckard up onto the roof, and gives the most one of the most classic monologues in film history. Yeah. Tears in the rain. Um. This is just a beautiful monologue. I, I I don't even know how it's one of those things where you just get angry at the writer and <laughs> for what a profound moment of writing it is. Yeah. It it's amazing. I don't even I'm like I'm I'm trying to think of something like worthwhile to say about the Tears in the Rain monologue itself and and I'm coming up blank because it's it's just kind of poetry to me. Um I it's it's basically only three lines, I think. Like, it's so incredibly brief. I mean, he talks about, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And, and again, you're right. The facial acting he does here is amazing. Just the, uh, the, the little sneer he gives when he says that line. Uh, and then what else? Um, you know, I've seen... Um, attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Yep. Sea beams glitter in the dark off the Tannhauser Gate. Which the, it's all totally made up, like that's completely made up. But it baffles me that people still debate what those things mean <laughs> because they just feel so real. Like they, we know, we know that he's been mining off-world and everything. Like we know that in the world of Blade Runner, there's space travel and they're they're out there. So attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion—that makes total sense to me. Yeah, and you know, sea beams glittering. Uh, in the dark outside the Tannhauser gate that 
also i mean it just that's a real thing and it feels real to me but what's a, you know what's amazing about this moment into these two lines cuz that's it he only describes two things uh-huh. and it makes it feel like there is this world beyond Deckard's miserable Los Angeles. Right. And that Roy Batty has lived in a real world where real things are happening, where there is there are there are wonders still out there. Right. And we are not seeing them and we never see them. We only ever when Roy Batty is saying, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe, he's talking to us too. We have been stuck in this horrible world for an entire film. And there's an amazing world, and Roy Batty has lived in it and has been stolen from him via this horrible deadline of his life. Yes. I, which, which is, yeah, a bigger question of the film. And this is a slave. I mean, this is someone, like, he's not, uh, you know, he, he's seen all these wondrous things, and he has this, uh, he's lived this amazing life that uh, is about to be lost, tragically, but his life has been one of slavery and forced labor. Yeah, and so. and it's it's I mean his it, it's I mean, he's he's run through this entire movie wanting more life you know wanting to go on longer um, and it's amazing that this it hints at this his life you know he was a slave he was like all replicants he is not given he's not treated like a person he's not a human being to them and but at the same time like you said you get the feeling that the human beings in Los Angeles in are on Earth are not living right. a life, um, which is really the true dichotomy of the film. And and before we get to that big dichotomy, which we're going to discuss in just a minute, I want to okay. point out one other thing which I think is fascinating. Deckard says exactly one thing in this entire scene. That's right. He says, finished, at the very end when Gaff says something like, are you done? Yep. You're done now? And he says, finished. Deckard, this is the only movie climax I can think of where the mo- big moment goes to the villain, and the hero does nothing but look terrified. Yeah, literally just sits there and does nothing. <laughs> that entire monologue Roy Batty's giving, he just sits there and stares. He has nothing, yeah. nothing to contribute <laughs> to this story at this point. That's right. And I think it's fascinating. I mean, not to say that Deckard isn't an important character in the scene, but but he he literally says nothing. In fact, I'm not even sure how far back before the scene I'd have to go to find a line of dialogue of Deckard because I feel like he doesn't say much before that either. No, most of the scene before this, I mean, he's running for his life. Like the last uh the last sound I remember him making is the grunt as a uh, Roy breaks his fingers, <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't really count as a line of dialogue, but uh Yeah, that's it. I mean, other than like pain, fear, grunting, De- Deckard yeah. doesn't talk. I mean, Deckard is a He's he's a he's a noir hero. Yes, or he's a noir detective. Yeah, and, but and his agency has been taken from him entirely. And by this point, it is Roy Batty's movie, it's no yes. longer Deckard's. Um, and I think it's interesting because I cannot imagine a Hollywood film letting an uh, ending like this go now. No, this would be <clears throat> this would be an indie film or an art house film. Now, yeah. this would be a Snowpiercer. Yeah, I was thinking a Snowpiercer is the kind of movie where I could see them trying doing something like this. They don't. I mean, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but that's that's the kind of movie you need in order to give. But yeah, if this is a block, a block a big Hollywood blockbuster, they would they would be laughed out of the room by saying my hero <laughs> is not going to have a line of dialogue through the entire climax. Oh, also by the way, the only reason he survives is cuz the villain saves him. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, it's impossible to discuss this scene Without getting at the core – one of the core questions. So the, the core question of this movie, Paul, if you would agree with me overall, not in terms of the, the conflict, but is what it means to be human. 
right? Yes. That's, you know, who is human, what is not human. That's kind of the, the core meditation of this movie. Yes. So that has led to a fairly big piece of controversy, which is, is Deckard a replicant or a human? That is the question. That is the question. And, and before we get into this too much, Paul, I, I'm I'm curious, what is your take? Do you do you have an opinion? And if you do, what is that opinion? I I do have I have two opinions. I have a personal opinion. I have what is my personal belief and my take from the film, and then I have what I believe is the important <laughs> take. Okay. My personal opinion based on the evidence I feel is presented in the film is that he is a replicant. Okay. Um, my, what I think is the important take is it doesn't matter. I think it's much more, I'm frustrated with the fact that, uh, that Ridley Scott has come out and given a definitive answer to this question, which all the subject of Arthur, you know, authorial intent, authorial intent, excuse me, not Arthur, uh, and all that. I mean, he releases the movie. It's not his anymore, but in the creators and the author's intention, he has stated that according to the director, the writer director, he has a replicant. I think that's, I think it says that in the film, but I wish that he hadn't said that because I think it's much more important to the film. It makes the film much more interesting, gives it more longevity. And I, and I think asks the questions of the film better if there isn't ever an answer to that question. I, I think I, I agree. I, I, so what, let me just set the stage on the, on the controversy thing. So Ridley Scott has said yes, that he's a replicant. Mm-hmm. Harrison Ford has said no, I did right. not play him as a replicant. And the writer uh, has said no, I intended there to be ambiguity, as you're saying, Paul. I wanted there to be ambiguity, but no, my intention was not that he was definitely a replicant. Right. So only Ridley Scott has said this, and I would like everyone to remember – as before we go into this discussion, that Ridley Scott gave as many story points as he could on the movie Prometheus, and 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 we saw that that movie had no no consistent story points whatsoever. Right? I like parts of Prometheus. Don't get me wrong, but Prometheus is a mess story wise. Yeah. So I only say that to say that I don't think Ridley Scott has a, a profound grasp on the importance of narrative details and stories. <laughs> So, that's that's fair. That's fair. Uh, he's a fantastic filmmaker, but but that's not one of his strengths. So what Ridley Scott says about his movies, I don't care about because in terms of the narrative side of things, because I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Um, so so I'm gonna give my take on this poll, and I'm I'm kind of I I'm I'm I, I don't think based on the text of the movie that it makes sense that he's a replicant. Actually, other the only. Tell me if I'm wrong, but the main point of argument that he's a replicant in terms of the text of the movie is the unicorn thing, right? That's pretty much the main like evidence that he's, an, he's a replicant. Well, that's the main evidence now because that was added in later. Right. That, that was not in the original theatrical cut. It, the theatrical cut, there's no, there's really not any evidence that he's a replicant. Well, I, I mean, I, some of the stuff that I that we may talk about, I think it was in the, I haven't seen the theatrical cut in years, so I'm not sure, but I think, I think there was some stuff in there at least to create ambiguity. Uh, like you said, the writer intended, but, um, I don't remember which version of the film, the, the half dozen versions that have come out. I don't remember when the unicorn dream was added to 
to double down on this notion. But uh, since it is in there now, and most people have seen the, that version, that's the evidence that most people point to. So, so the so the I, I, to, to try to keep focused a little bit on the scene, what I'll say is that the the big evidence that people point to is that Deckard has a dream that that of a unicorn mid movie, and then at the end of the movie, right before he escapes with Rachel, there's a an origami unicorn that right. Gaff has left for him, indicating to people that Gaff knows he's a replicant and thus has left this unicorn to indicate that he's read his implanted memories or in this file or whatever. Um, and thus, Deckard is a replicant. Um, but I feel my opinion is, A, I'm with you, Paul, on the ambiguity. I'm, I'm totally cool with anyone that's like, it's important. It's not really important. The importance is that we don't know. Uh-huh. But I feel that it's pretty clear, based only on the evidence of the scene that, that matches up with the rest of the movie, that Deckard almost certainly is not a replicant, and that, in fact, if he is a replicant, it kind of ruins the scene. But the okay. Ev- so, so the evidence, in terms of like the stupid, boring, technical story stuff, all replicants we've seen have enhanced strength. Mm-hmm. They're strong, they're physically capable. Deckard can't hold himself up on this beam. At this point, I, I can explain that. And but he has gotten his butt kicked by every single replicant in the movie. In okay. fact, this movie is an endless series. The only movie I can think of where the hero gets their their ass kicked more often is Miller's Crossing. Um, <laughs> Her- I mean, Harrison Ford gets his ass kicked in most of his movies, <laughs> but but not to the level of Blade Runner. He gets. Yeah. I mean, it is an endless series of ass kickings for decades. Yeah. Um, yes. So he doesn't seem to have the enhanced physical capabilities. This is true. Of the of replicants, so that doesn't seem to be there. But the other thing is, and this is the most important thing: what does Roy Batty saving Deckard mean? And this is where the question comes down to. This scene, actually, Paul, is the crux of my argument of why I don't think re- he's a replicant. But I think if you make the argument that he is, it tanks the movie. Like if you make the argument that he definitely is, I think it tanks the movie. Um, what is Roy Batty doing? He's saving someone, right? Mm-hmm. And specifically. He's taking a moment to say, my life is going to end, and I'm going to save you. And even more so, we have a moment where the replicant is acting human and saving a human who is not acting human. Right. If Deckard is another replicant, that goes out the window. The whole like the whole question of what does human mean is gone if what we're seeing is a replicant saving another replicant. That is an argument that could be made. And so I'm curious because that's my read is that – and in fact, the same thing with I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. That's a little racist by the way. I'm kidding. Um, so you know, I think that I think that Roy Batty is talking to humanity at that point. You know, Like I've seen he, things you longer lived motherfuckers who, who have given me this short life wouldn't believe and they're all going to die with me because you suck is sort yes. of the subtext of that scene. So that's – I mean at the very least, Roy Batty does not think he's a replicant at the very that, least. And that – and. That's one of my points is that Roy Batty doesn't – for the scene to play, Roy Batty can't know that Deckard is a replicant. Like the last time I just rewatched this scene, I really, really started thinking about that. I was like, OK, does Batty know or does he suspect or what What does Batty think is going on? And Batty just ha- – Roy has to just think that he's he's human. Um but one of the themes that runs throughout the film is the desire for more life and why are these replicants so pissed off? I mean, aside from the fact that they are used as slave labor, Roy Batty's mission is to get more life. I want more life, fucker, or 
in this version, one of the changes they make for the uh, final cut that I don't like is they change that line to I want more life father. But <laughs> really? <laughs> anyway, yes, it's okay. annoying. I hate that. But uh, it was so, so much more powerful with the curse word in there. But uh, and, and the point is that Roy Batty is pissed off because he has an incept date. He has an end line built into his system, he's going to die someday, someday probably soon, and he doesn't know when that date is. The point is, everybody has an incept date, humans and replicants. Nobody knows how long they have. Nobody knows how long they're, you know, when their final date is. Um, Deckard, whether he's human or replicant, doesn't matter. He has an incept date. He's going to die. All of his memories are going to be lost, like tears and rain as well. It makes no difference whether he's a replicant or a human. Yes. I mean, I agree. I think that in terms of – this is why I've always found the question of whether he's a replicant or not kind of weird. Because Mm -hmm. the scene plays because – I mean, to be perfectly honest, the whole movie plays – because there are humans and replicants in it. If every if every main character we see is a replicant and we know they're and they're definitely a replicant, the whole movie is just kind of weird at that point. You know, not just the scene, but it kind of echoes out. I mean, it's a it's a story about a replicant who hunts replicants and then falls in love with a replicant, and then a replicant saves him, and then he runs off with a replicant that he's fallen in love with. And that's the whole movie. If if he's if he's definitely a replicant, that's the entire movie. You know? Yeah, but there there are other colors that we can add in there, which it it may possibly change what the meaning or or the direction of the film, what the tone of the film is. I mean, you ask, so there's these references to slaves, like uh, Roy talks about, uh, it's painful to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. Well, he's telling Deckard that because Deckard is also a slave. Uh, If if Deckard is a replicant, he is is a replicant. He doesn't know he's a replicant. He's a replicant that's been designed to hunt other replicants. He is doing a dirty job. Like replicants are used to do dirty jobs that humans don't want to do. Being a Blade Runner is a dirty job that human cops don't want to do. So uh, whatever his name is, his chief, the the police chief whose name I suddenly can't remember, Bryant, uh, you know, brings him back in on – and puts him on this mission, even though he doesn't want to do it because Bryant doesn't want to waste any of his human officers on this job. Um, so the, the heroes and villains of the film that we've been watching are all replicants and they're all living out their horrible, (laughs) despicable lives at the whims of humans. And we never even really get to see these, uh, the life of humans. Like humans are just using all of these main characters for their own purposes. I hate that take. I don't think that take makes any sense. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not a fan of that take at all, seriously. And and well, uh, so let me ask you one question. You said you had a reason for this. So Deckard's hanging off the roof, right? He, like Roy Batty makes the jump across the roof like nothing. Deckard can't make it, and Deckard can't hold himself up on the on the beam. If the cops send a replicant to kill a bunch of replicants, and we know that you can make replicants strong, uh-huh. who in their right mind makes a weak ass replicant? To send after strong replicants. Well, the the fan wank that you could put on that is that uh, they don't want to have uh, super strong. On <laughs> we are we are in nine eleven truther territory at that point. <laughs> I I mean I don't I don't think that this is a stretch to imagine that if they're going to have replicants, uh, like unaware replicants working side by side with other humans, they don't want them to have a secret store of super strength with which they can turn on us. <laughs> <laughs> like the 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 enhanced replicants are the ones that they send off world where they're not working with people. The ones that they keep here on Earth, uh, 
are the ones that uh, are not given. Come on, Paul. We read comic books. When you want to fight supervillains, you send superheroes <laughs> after them. <laughs> we read comics. Uh, uh, Ridley Scott probably doesn't. <laughs> but but you know. But I mean, back to the scene. So so I I I am I'm, I'm glad at least I agree that I think thematically because you know people. I think this is interesting that Blade Runner and this scene specifically comes down to this interesting divide in fandom overall. That you have the people in fandom that want to examine weird details, and I make a 9-11 truth or joke, but this is kind of how they, they feel to me, that they, they examine plot points in the movies. Like, well, there's this unicorn. Well, how would blah, 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 blah. You know, they get into these little plot things, and they determine that that Deckard must be a replicant because of these X number of plot points. And there's the other side where we're talking about a story with themes and ideas and questions about humanity. And as soon as you start answering those questions in definitive ways, like he's definitely a replicant, the movie's meaning is just gone. The entire meaning, this scene is a beautiful scene because the idea inherent to it is that Roy Batty is suddenly more human than the human. That's which, like, which is one of my favorite lines from the film, more human than human. Yeah. And, yeah. and Roy Batty, they have these Voight-Kampf tests to test emotional responses. But in the end, the emotional response that matters is that Roy Batty can't let this person die in front of him that in this moment when he is about to pass away himself and he finally understands what death is this man who has killed so many people he realizes what's the point of letting one more person die i'm going to save them and that's a really powerful statement to me this scene was like emotionally moving to me because of that and so i get a little cranky with the with the replicant argument because i feel like you're attacked uh, not you i mean like i feel like the fans you know what i mean like these like obsessive fanboys Mm-hmm. are kind of obsessing the emotional core. They're like a- attacking the emotional core of this film to me. <clears throat> and I don't mind if you're... I, I don't mind the question, the ambiguity. I think the ambiguity is fine. But to say, oh, he's definitely a replicant, is basically saying, hey, let's just rip the heart out of Roy Batty's <laughs> final moments. Well, I like I said, I would love to keep the ambiguity. I prefer it if it's an open-ended question. But to play devil's advocate, I would say that... Um, from a from an emotional and and uh, thematic point of view, the reason why I kind of lean towards uh, ignoring factual or whatever you know in film details, like I can't remember if in this ver- if this is the first version that did it, if the final cut is the first version that did it. But in the final cut, there is a scene earlier where, like throughout the whole film, we see the replicants at various times. Their eyes glow; they get that eye shine. That yeah, there is a scene in Deckard's apartment where Deckard has that. Yeah, I, I I do remember. I'm gonna have to look at that. But I I'm just gonna blame Ridley Scott. <laughs> I, I can't remember if that was added or if that's always been in there. But anyways, ignoring all that, just from an emotional and kind of a, a thematic, a storytelling, the reason why I lean towards more towards the Deckard is I like the idea of uh, that that Batty has has passed on the information, like like. Throughout the film, uh, replicants collect photos. They hang on to memories. They hang on. These are these are. This is the way that they hang on to memories. It's the the physical manifestation of their lives. Are these photos? And uh, bad, Roy's about to die. He doesn't have any photos, so he passes on this important information. He continues his life by giving just a little piece of this to Deckard and allows Deckard to live. So that small piece of Roy will continue living on. Um. And I like the idea that Deckard now has to go on and decide, uh, you know, what 
he has to choose to live. He has to choose not to be a slave. He has to decide if he's going to be, whether he is or is not a replicant, he has to decide if he's going to be a replicant. Is he going to live as a slave or is he going to fight for more life? Is he going to, I mean, he knows that Rachel is a replicant, um, but he is choosing to, uh, whether he, if he believes he's human, he's choosing to live his life with a replicant. I mean, sort of the 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 divide is breaking down right here. Well, and I think that's and that's sort of why I fall on the idea that one of the main characters has to be human, or at least should at least be there should be an equal measure of likelihood that they're a human. Even though I feel like Deckard has to be, like for me emotionally, he has to be for this to work. But I can understand the ambiguity working as well because I, the reason I feel this is that we're getting at the that to be human is a choice as I feel like part of this movie. Yes. That, you know, and I think that, that to get at that, that Deckard is choosing not to be Deckard is choosing has through this entire film chosen to be a thing that goes and hunts down replicants. Meanwhile, Roy Batty is choosing to be human and the whole movie. He's choosing to be human, not understanding that. And in that final moment, Batty finally understands what it means to choose to be human. And he passes that along to Deckard, maybe possibly a human who doesn't know how. Right. And see, I think it, I think that plays either way, whether Deckard is or is not a replicant. But if he's a replicant, I love the idea that he discovers his humanity. He, he fully becomes human at the end of the film when he has perhaps come to the realization that he, that he actually isn't. I, I can see that. I mean, I think but. I think I think that thinking he's replicant for sure is wrong. And this is my podcast. So I'm <laughs> going to say that for sure. But no, I, I, okay. I, I do. I, I think the ambiguity at least is important. That's all. I think you've got to you've got to maintain to, to come out and say, I actually what it is, I would say it it from the point of view of the movie, trying getting into a discussion of that, like really getting into like, well, is he really human is just kind of missing the point. Maybe that's why the why the is he a replicant conversation bothers me. Yes. Because I feel like in the end you're kind of missing the point of that scene. And you're missing the point of the movie, which is to say, what does human mean? Yes. And and Roy Batty I gives agree. us that answer. I agree. I agree. And and, so, and I, I'm I'm upset that Ridley Scott has tried to put a definitive answer on this. I, I'm upset that Ridley Scott is Ridley Scott sometimes because he's a talented man who just seems to want to be there to make us upset. <laughs> at this point. Um, and I love Ridley Scott movies, man. There are a number of Ridley Scott movies. Trust me, if, if I could have three hours to talk about Kingdom of Heaven, I would spend three hours talking about Kingdom of Heaven. I have never seen it. Oh. Just make sure you see the director's cut. That's okay. Right. Um, but, so okay. So, so Roy Batty gives his speech and passes. And we get the last moment. And before we move into the real end of the scene, we see the dove fly away. Yeah. Which, which Roy Batty has been carrying this dove. Yeah, and I earlier when they're running through the building, there's a scene where like some doves fly up and scare uh, Deckard. Like he scares a bunch of birds, and I'm assuming that that's where Roy got the dove because he just pops up on the roof and all of a sudden he has a dove in his hand. He's he's shirtless. He's almost naked in this scene. Yes, and he's naked with a dove. Yeah, basically, it's weird. He's carrying to continue the to continue the Christ parallels. Yes. Yes, and I, it's really it, the whole dove thing is a little strange to me. I don't really have an answer for what is is the. I mean, obviously, in that last moment, the dove is sort of his soul growing right. up, you know, flying up. Yeah. But, but I don't get why he's carrying around after that point. What, why <laughs> it it, it you, was a little odd. Do you have Do you have like a theory as to why why um, Roy is carrying a dove around for the scene? Um. Uh, I mean, within the story, the theory would be that uh, he's freaking unhinged. <laughs> Okay, and, dove, do, all right. and does wacky stuff. 
that that probably barely means anything to himself. But um, I mean, thematically, it really is just for that Christ parallel. I mean, the he he likes toying with living things. And, you know, maybe he had some idea of doing a terrible thing with this beautiful bird or whatever, and then he decides to let it live the same way. I mean, maybe it's a symbol for Deckard. Maybe he lets the bird live the way he's letting Deckard live. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, a, weird, it's a weird moment in a, in a series of weird choices that, that Patty makes, but I couldn't let it pass. I couldn't go on without talking about the dove. But the, <laughs> the, the, the shot of the dove escaping up is actually a really beautiful shot in the movie, so... It is. And and it's interesting that they don't uh I mean they don't draw attention to the fact that he's he's run, running around on the rooftop and jumping from roof to roof with a, a dove in his hand. No, in fact, there's only really one shot when you notice it, right? Before cuz like before he decides to jump across the roof, he sort of turns around and does this weird thing where he crosses takes, his arms. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then he turns around and you can see the dove really clearly in that scene, but the rest of the time it's not really clear he still has the dove until the dove flies away. Yeah. At the end. Um, but then, so during that scene, we actually see Gaff's spinner landing, as you had said. We kind of see it in the right. background landing. And then Gaff comes out. And this is another thing that I had forgotten about the movie that Gaff gives. He has this conversation where, like, you've done a man's work. You're all done now. Which is another question. Or yes. Is he a man or is he a replicant? Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> but then he, he says a line that I had forgotten existed. And I'm embarrassed. Really? Because it is a gorgeous line where he goes, too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? Yes. Holy is, crap, is that an amazing line? It is an amazing line. And that's, that's, that's my whole, you know, replicant or human, we all have incept dates. Yeah. And I, I just, oh my God, I love, that line is amazing. That line is as amazing as the speech that comes before it. And I always get fixated on the, on the tears in the rain speech. But that, then again, who does line is just, it's just beautiful. Yeah. What do you recall about the earlier version of the film that had the voiceover? I don't think that scene was different. Was it different? No, the scene was the same, but uh, it it goes from that to the voiceover. If I remember correctly, it's been a long time. If I remember correctly, the voiceover that follows is all about uh, how what Gaff meant was that Rachel is actually a whole new, a whole new breed, a whole new. Uh, series of replicant that doesn't have an incept date i i I remember that being that like in the voiceover over the because like the the final cut ends with them getting into the elevator and it closing which is just an amazing final scene but in the in the original version they're like in a spinner driving away i think yes and there's a flying off into the forest or whatever and there's like a voiceover he's sort of like hoping that maybe she doesn't have an incept date was it was it hopeful? I thought he was saying that that's what I, I, I don't know. But I think it was hopeful. I seem to remember that that version, that the original version, is sort of like we're going off hoping that maybe she wasn't given one. It was the tacked on happy ending is what it was. But uh, it played off of Gaff's line that uh, too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, which, I, which I agree is, is a great line. Uh, Gaff is <laughs> one of those characters where uh, – he he seems like he's an antagonist or whatever, just because he's so smarmy or whatever. Uh, he doesn't seem like he's one of the good guys, but he has the the moment of wisdom at the end, I guess. Yeah, yeah, he he does. He's a he's an odd character, and I love that he just sort of like pops into the end of the scene at the too late. Thank thank you, Gaff. You've shown up. <laughs> oh, he was earlier. 
Yeah, that was deliberate. That yes. Was deliberate. He was waiting. Five minutes later, he shows up and he's like, hey, good job letting Roy Batty die of his own. That's the other thing is, like, Roy Batty doesn't even die at the hero's hands. Roy Batty dies at the moment he would have died if... Anyways. Anyways. Yeah. Deckard is completely ineffectual at killing Roy Batty. And, exactly right. And Gaff shows up just to give his thing. But that... And that and honestly, that shot of Gaff is one of the best shots in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, Leaning on his cane, tossing the gun. And there's, like, fans up on the sides of him and the spinners in the background giving the lights. And there's, like... I, I realized watching that shot that spinners have apparently, like, eight spinning eight eight different colored lights spinning on them oh yeah <laughs> there are an awful lot of police lights on them and they are not all the same color they are a goofy array <laughs> of police lights on those cars yeah. um but it's, it's just a it's a beautiful 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 shot it is yeah it is, yeah just an amazing scene. I mean, really, like, I, there are not a whole lot of movies that that where you can say the whole movie comes down to one scene. And Blade Runner comes down to this scene. Like, almost not even a full scene. Comes down to a couple lines of dialogue. A couple of lines of dialogue. Yep. What, and- what do you think? Uh, I, just, I just thought of this. Um, the actual moment that Roy dies. So, like, he hangs his head uh, and, the, and his hand goes limp and the dove flies up. And then it cuts to uh, Harrison Ford's face, who's just been staring dumbfounded for the entire <laughs> length of this scene and it kind of goes into slow motion and uh, Her- uh deckard like blinks but it's in slow motion so it looks like he's just closing his eyes and then it's it sounds like there's sort of a cannon shot it's i don't know if it's actually meant to be a diegetic sound effect but there's just a there is a sound effect that's almost like a gunshot yes uh which i thought you know marked the moment of finality there which is, I think, actually part of Vangelis? 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 Vangelis, I think is how it's pronounced. Vangelis' soundtrack, I think. Huh. Which, which, which is actually, I, I want to, I mean to take a moment to discuss the extremely interesting soundtrack. Because you're right, that that moment sort of marks his passing. And I think it's part of the soundtrack. Okay. I think it's part of the music. And the music is really important to this scene. Um, th- There are... Things about about the soundtrack is that it's of movie soundtracks. There aren't that many that are more of its time than this. You're never going to hear a soundtrack like this again because it's super eighties. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, well, it's 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 super Blade Runner is what it is. You're you're, well, you're right. It is. I mean, Blade Runner is kind of like eighties future in its way, but but in thus Vangelis' soundtrack is sort of the same thing where it's like obviously born of that moment but Mm -hmm. it's a weird projection of that moment into the future Mm -hmm. and in four years or five years in the future isn't it like 2019 is that where is that the date i think it is yeah yeah so we're we're coming up on so we'll see if vangelis's music becomes again a thing but but it's a weird soundtrack i mean it's 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 the kind of thing that if you put it in a movie now would be considered really cheesy it's very synthy Mm -hmm. it's very artificial feeling you know it's it's keyboard it's moog keyboard sounds and and all kinds of things but it's beautiful especially yeah. in the scene it is really beautiful yeah i cannot imagine this film without that score i just can't i've i've loved the vangelis soundtrack for a long time I, it, it's such an amazing soundtrack that i when i bought it they came out with a version that's actually like four four discs worth of music yeah including think- like music inspired by stuff it's 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 a weird soundtrack but it is i mean it's 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 as unique to the movie as a lot of the visuals are. 
and and that that music in that scene specifically is absolutely perfect. It's 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 background and you don't notice it unless you start thinking about it, but it, if you took it away the scene wouldn't be the same. Yeah, again, it's the it's the tears and rain moment because for a large part of the film, like partic- I'm thinking particularly of the opening scene when we're flying over all of the belching f- spouts of flame and the lights and all that and the Vangelis orchestra, keyboard orchestra or whatever comes in that otherworldly music. That's that's big and like sweeping. And uh but in the tears and rain scene, especially the line tears and rain, the music drops down and it's very personal, it's very intimate. It's almost like that huge orchestral stuff from earlier just played on like a single keyboard or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's a it's a gorgeous moment and it's perfect and and i bring it up because i think that it's interesting that this moment that you read is kind of batty's moment of passing which i think is a great read on it is vangelis's i think i suspect based on the soundtrack his contribution to that moment that the music marks batty's passing and then we also get sort of this cascade of sound as the dove flies up right into the air you know it's the music is right there with us as 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 Batty's peace and then Batty's passing and then Batty's soul ascending with the little cascade of notes, keyboard notes as we go up. And it's a, it's a soundtrack that could never happen again, which is one of the reasons I think it's really interesting because this is a movie that feels like it can't happen again, but it's definitely a soundtrack that we would never get again. Just wait till we get an announcement for the remake. Just oh, wait. Oh God. I, the, I can't even imagine the way, first of all, the internet's going to be insufferable, but I can't. I can't imagine. There is no win for a writer or a director no, making a remake no, of this movie. No. You, you're just buzz sawing your head. There, there were talks for years. For all I know, there still are talks about a sequel. Like I think Ridley Scott actually had a sequel in mind. I, I you know, if they made another movie in the world, I wouldn't argue. It might not be good, but I'd be fine with it. But I, as long as you don't try to touch the Roy Batty story, yeah, it would have to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, what do you do different that matches Tears in the Rain? I mean, this, this is the scene that tells you why you can't remake this movie. <laughs> right. Because you either repeat this scene or you make people angry because you don't make a scene that's as powerful as this. Exactly. Yeah, it's a no-win situation. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the all-time classic moments in film. And, and any artist who cares about their sanity does not get anywhere near this. Unless it's a giant payday, in which case you have enough money for therapy. So... Whatever. Good, good point. Go for it. Um, thank you so much, Paul, for for discussing this this amazing amazing scene with me. Oh, thanks. Thank you for letting me. It, I love this film. Yeah, it was. It, I'm really glad to have gotten a chance to look at this again. I I think that our main thing now is we have to make sure AJ rewatches this movie. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> AJ is is Paul's uh, co-host on Gobbledy Geek, and he saw Blade Runner I think when he was like 15 and didn't like it, and has not seen it since. Yeah. So he's, he is insufferable. He he is he I think he'll like it the second time through. But um, <laughs> place your bets now. Place yes. your bets now. Thank you, Internet. Could be in on the pool. Um Paul, um, can you tell the audience where they can find you online? Where can they where can they follow your thoughts? Oh man, do they want to do that? You can follow me on Twitter. I am at haunt ten thirteen. That's one zero one three. Uh you can find me and AJ, the insufferable AJ, on the podcast Gobbledy Geek. That's at gobbledygeekpodcast.com. Um, 
The show is also on Facebook. Just search for Gobbly Geek. I don't know how Facebook works. I'm on Facebook, but please don't try to find me there because I never do anything with it. Um, really, Twitter is your best bet. Twitter is definitely where to find Paul and definitely yeah. um, the Gobbly Geek podcast website where you can find excellent podcasts both about Gobbly Geek and about the Deadly Counter of Justice is where we're going right. to be posting those. As for me, I am your host, Eric Sippel. You can find me on Twitter at Salon. That's S-A-A-L-O-N. You can also find my blog where I will be keeping a record of these fantastic discussions on film. That is Salon Moyo, S-A-A-L-O-N-M-U-Y-O.com. Thank you for listening to us discuss one of the best scenes in film history. And we will be back again on Making the Scene with another hopefully fantastic scene. Have a nice day. Thank you. Thank you.